Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Hey, Christ Church. We're glad you're with us in worship. I'd like to introduce our speaker this morning. You know him. Drake Holderman's been on our staff for the last five years as one of our student ministers and for the last three plus years leading the student ministry team. And just this month, Drake has transitioned into a new role with us, Missional Impact Minister. Matt Gilchrist has served that position for the last six years, but this January, Matt and his family transitioned down to Hope City to become the executive pastor there, and he went with our blessing and our grace, and we're excited for Matt. We're really excited for Drake's new transition on our team to take this new role and work with our impact team. Drake's going to be bringing the last message in our series, Life Alive, and as you prepare to hear the word that God has given Drake, would you open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 23, and listen to the reading of the word today. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. So... If you think you are standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. 1 Corinthians 9, 23-27 and 10, 12-13 Well, good morning. How are we doing? Good. Glad to hear it. Hey, Dennis. How are you, sir? Uh, Raise your hand if you've ever been on one of these bad boys behind a boat. All right. Raise your hand if you've ever feared for your life as you're on one of these bad boys behind a boat. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, If you've never been on one of these, you can turn your attention to the screens and you're going to see some action of what those of us who have been on one of these have experienced in our lives. It's absolute chaos. Like, I don't know what's taking Elon Musk so long to get to Mars, strap a few astronauts to one of these bad boys, boat full throttle, 90 degree turn. We can get there in no time. This was my dad's favorite activity uh, to do with my brother and I when we were at the lake growing up in the summers. And uh, he would just absolutely go crazy. The driver of that boat has so much power and control over the rider of the tubes. It's absolutely uh, chaotic, but it's also fun. Now, if you have ridden the tubes before, maybe you figured out the secret to being able to control yourself while you're in the midst of chaos. And if you haven't, I'm not going to tell you because it's more fun to see videos of you skipping across the water like a rock than to tell you the secret of controlling yourself while you're on an inner tube. Now, I can't hold this up here the entire time. That would be ridiculous to me. So Tyler's going to come out here and take it backstage. Uh, Tyler Bate, everybody. I miss him in student ministry. It's been a week. Yeah, give it up for him. 
Now, maybe you've never ridden a tube, but maybe you've uh, been to a Little League game. It's Little League season, and uh, my wife, Willie, and I, we live uh, right by a park, and in the evenings when the weather's nice, we go on walks in that park, and right now it's really fun because there's uh, kids playing baseball and softball, and a lot of our friends have kids who play t-ball, and so we'll go to their games and cheer them on, and uh, it's absolute chaos if you've never been to a t-ball game. you got kids hitting the ball, running to third base. you got three runners on second base, hugging and doing ring around the rosy, stuff like that. Some kid just transferred in from soccer, kicking the ball to first base. It is absolute chaos, but it's really fun. It's pretty harmless chaos. Some of those kids will grow up, they'll play coach pitch or machine pitch or get to kid pitch, and then maybe they get to junior high and they start playing high school ball as well. And some of them, even some of the kids from our church graduating this year, go on to play college baseball. Some of them will go on to play minor league or major league baseball. And then those of us who watch them as t-ball players pay hundreds of dollars to sit in seats that aren't comfortable and pay like 10 or 20 bucks for a pretzel to watch them play. It changes, right, from the chaos on the Little League field to the incredible discipline that we see on the Major League fields. I don't know if you've ridden a tube or if you've never seen a t-ball game, but you are human and you can relate to the experience of being a human. While riding a tube and a t-ball, that chaos is pretty harmless. We see a lot of chaos around us that is not harmless. We live in a world that is out of control. The pandemic, other diseases, natural disasters, wars, there's genocides happening right now in this world, mass shootings. The world in which we live is out of control. And if we're honest with ourselves and look within ourselves, sometimes we'll notice that we are out of control. Hatred, idolatry, disunity, jealousy. We can make a long list. I'm right, aren't I? Life is not always like what King David wrote, green pastures and quiet waters. The world in which we live is out of control and sometimes we sense it within ourselves that we are out of control. We're in our final week of the Life Alive series, talking about the fruit of the Spirit. And it's important to remember, and this is a tricky word, self-control, because we think that we may be able to attain it for ourselves, but we must remember that self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and today, self-control. Self-control is produced in us by the Holy Spirit, but we must provide space in our life for the Holy Spirit to do the work that he does in producing the fruit in our life, including self-control. So if you don't hear anything else this morning, I want you to hear this. We practice spiritual disciplines to give the Holy Spirit space to produce self-control in our lives. And we do this in order to respond in a Christ-like manner to the chaos around us and to reduce the chaos within us. In 1 Corinthians, Paul is writing to the church there, and he compares the Christian life to athletic discipline. He says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? So run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. He's talking about Olympic-style games. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. He's talking about our faith. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer just beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. 
He's talking about preparing yourself for the Christian faith in which we live. And he's writing to the church in Corinth. The church in Corinth was no stranger to chaos. There was a major city for trade and commerce. And like many of our major cities today, a lot of those same societal ills and vices were present. I'll spare you the details, but then probably leading vice in Corinth was sexual immorality. In Corinth, you had the temple to the goddess Aphrodite, the goddess of love and fertility. It was really abuse. And for in this temple, you had a hundred, possibly thousand slaves who were forced into intercourse with worshipers of Aphrodite. And the church didn't shine very bright in Corinth either. We know from Paul and the letters that he wrote to the church that they struggle with division, classism, spiritual immaturity, arrogance, and a man sleeping with his dad's wife and nobody batted an eye. You could sum up the Corinthian church like this, chaos around them and chaos within them. You could probably sum up the American church in the same way. Chaos around us and chaos within us. Paul's writing to a young mentee and a fellow pastor along a similar vein because he realizes that the Corinthian church and, and we as well in many churches, especially even the church that Timothy pastored in the city of Ephesus, forgets that we are in a battle with an enemy. And so he writes to Timothy, join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. It takes discipline because we are in a fight. A fun piece of family history uh, for my family is that my great uncle Bill wrestled in the 1948 Olympics, which were held in London, England. It was the first Olympics after World War II. He wrestled in the flyweight division at 114 and a half pounds. He was a tiny guy and uh, he wrestled. You might be wondering, did he get the gold medal? No, he did not. Did he get the silver medal? No, he did not. Did he get the bronze medal? No, he did not. He did not get a medal except for a participation medal that he did uh, deserve. And, and it's probably one of the spaces where you can say a participation medal is deserved, being that it is the Olympics. He had to, he had to work hard. If you know wrestling, you know it's a rigorous uh, sport that requires a lot of discipline. He wrestled when he was younger. He wrestled in high school. He wrestled at Oklahoma State. Back then, Oklahoma A&M. He prepared for the Olympics. He trained for it. Just like Paul is talking about, a runner and a boxer they train for what they're entering into. Now, it would be silly for me to think that I could go wrestle at the Olympic level. Why? Well, number one, I don't look good in a singlet. Spandex is not my friend. And uh, number two, I haven't wrestled since the junior high. I'm not prepared for that kind of level. I would go there, land flat on my back, and be an embarrassment to myself and to our country, wouldn't I? It's silly for me to think that I could go wrestle at the Olympic level. And it's also silly for us to think that we could be self-controlled in the chaos around us when we haven't practiced the spiritual disciplines to get ready for the chaos that our enemy will bring. And he will bring it. Peter reminds the church to be alert and of sober mind. For your enemy, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. We can fight the enemy though. Those of us who are prepared for the battle will be victorious over the attacks of the enemy. For Paul reminds that, that God is on our side, church. He writes in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. 
He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. And the way out of temptation that God provides is self-control that is produced in us by the Holy Spirit when we practice the disciplines of our faith. And I need you to hear this. Our aim in gaining self-control through spiritual disciplines is not so we can have authority over our own life or become the captain of our soul, for we have tried this, haven't we? And where is your ship, O captain, but at the bottom of sea of sin and death? Now, we practice the spiritual disciplines of our faith that we may gain more freedom over ourselves in order that we may be more available to live in the freedom of God and be more attuned to the Holy Spirit's leading in our life. It was the Lord Jesus who said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. The first call to those who want to be a follower of Jesus is deny yourself. Spiritual disciplines is not about becoming your own man or your own woman so you can do whatever you want. It is about opening up yourself to God so that he can do what he wants to do through you. This is what Jesus did. He practiced spiritual disciplines to live a life that was in control and in obedience to the Father's will. I want to go through some of the spiritual disciplines of our faith. I won't go through them all because there are many, but I want to go through a few and show you how Jesus practiced them or what Jesus said about these spiritual disciplines, the first of which is fasting. Biblical fasting would be abstaining from food to hunger your body so that your soul can hunger for God and ultimately be filled with God. Probably the primary example of fasting in the life of Jesus is right after his baptism, he went into the desert. Luke writes this, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. No doubt he was hungry, but his soul was full. And we get these, these uh, details at the end of the narrative. When the devil had finished all of his tempting, he left him until an opportune time, a.k.a. Jesus didn't budge. He was self-controlled. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. Translation, Jesus left the wilderness stronger than when he entered it, for when he fasted, he opened up his humanity to the power of the Spirit to move in his life, and he was satisfied with God, not tempted or dismayed by the sin of the enemy trying to tempt him. Let's ask the question, should we fast? Should we abstain from food? And I know that there's definitions out there of fasting that say abstain from entertainment or abstain from this, and those are good, and we probably should practice those things, but the biblical definition of fasting is abstaining from food, something that we need to sustain our bodies, to make it hurt, like Paul talks, striking a blow to our body that we might hunger for God and be satisfied with him. Rejecting the most necessary things that we need for life in order to know God more. Should we fast? Now, I want to be sensitive to those in the room who may struggle with eating disorders. You, may, you, you need feel no shame or guilt about your struggle. And in this season of your life, it may not be wise for you 
to fast. And I want you to not feel shame or guilt because there are other ways in which you can open up your soul to hunger for God. But for those of us who do not bear that struggle, know this, Moses fasted, David fasted, Jesus fasted. When Jesus taught about fasting, he didn't say, if you fast, he said, when you fast. There's an expectation, the spiritual discipline, an expectation of our faith. And it's the spiritual discipline that gives us self-control to keep our appetites in check and remember ourselves to hunger for God. Why would it be important for you to fast? Because if you take time to examine your life and remove the things that you need, it creates in you an opportunity to see that you are crowding your soul with things other than God. This is what fasting does in our life. Another spiritual discipline that Jesus himself practiced was rest. And rest has been practiced of our faith since Genesis chapter two, when it was God who first rested after the work he did in creation. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. And we know Jesus rested as well. Jesus had a tough job. Before he was a preacher, he was a carpenter, which was physical labor. But the job of being a preacher, especially in Jesus' day, was tough, demanding. He traveled all over the countryside. He engaged in debate. He performed miracles. He taught. He preached. He had a tough job, and he needed to rest. In fact, after a long day of teaching in Mark, we get this story of Jesus sleeping in a boat during the middle of a chaotic storm. Mark writes, leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him, and a furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. And Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. In the middle of a chaotic storm, where is the Lord and Savior but with his head on a pillow? Why? Because rest reminds us that we are not the ones in control, but God is the one who is in control. We are not the sustainer of all things. Release yourself from that. God is the sustainer of all things. And Jesus practiced rest, and we should too. Maybe you've even described yourself as a workaholic, someone who is consumed by the work they do. It's interesting to study American work culture over the past century. In 1930, an economist named John Maynard Keynes wrote this essay titled Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren. And in it, he predicted that by now we would be at a 15-hour work week. Basically, our work week and our weekend would be swapped. <laughs> and our main struggle would be to figure out what to do with all the free time that we have. Man, we are those grandchildren. And we know that's not true. The trend continued in the 1950s. New York Times wrote an article saying that our lives would be marked less by our work and more by our family, our free time, our hobbies, and our interests. What's one of the questions that you ask somebody when you're first getting to know them? What do you do for a living? And aren't our answers so strange? Because when we're asked, what do we do for a living? We almost always respond with the work that we do. Not, oh, what do I do for a living? Well, I live with my wife and my, my son. We're expecting another one. I love being a dad and a husband. I love going outdoors. I love playing sports and watching sports. 
I love reading. I don't know what it would be for you, but I know most often when we respond to this question, it's what we do. I'm a, I'm a businessman. I'm a builder. I'm a hairstylist. We respond about our living with the work that we do. Now, I'm not saying that work is a bad thing. No, work is a good thing, but work cannot be our God. We cannot be consumed by our work. And Jesus practiced rest and he encouraged us to practice rest, more specifically Sabbath. The Lord commanded to Moses to teach through his people. Commandment number three is this. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor, work, and do all of it. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, and on it you shall do no work. Were you created to work? Yes. Were you created to rest? Yes. Rest allows the Holy Spirit to produce a self-control in us that allows us to not be consumed by the work that we do. Another spiritual discipline that might not seem like one of the traditional ones, but it certainly is a practice of our faith, is obedience. Being obedient to the teachings of Jesus, to the leading of the Holy Spirit in our life. I want to take a, a moment to talk to the gentleman in the room for a sense that the Holy Spirit has been telling me to do this, and I want to be obedient in this moment as well. One of the teachings that we find of Jesus in the, in the many that he had was this in Matthew chapter 5 from the Sermon on the Mount, when he's talking about sexual immorality. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. So gentlemen, I want to speak on this for a moment. I'm not promoting self-mutilation as I don't think that's what Jesus was talking about. But I will not write this off as a silly command to be ignored for this is a serious command to be obeyed. So what would it look like, sir? If your life was different, if you had a commitment to purity and obedience and purity, instead of hiding stuff on your phone, you confessed it to a trusted friend and trashed the smartphone for the dumbest phone that you could find. Gouge it out and throw it away. What if instead of gathering with the guys to make crude and crash jokes about other women, you carved out time each and every week to take your wife on a date night? Gouge it out and throw it away. What if you stopped any and all flirtatious relationships you have in person, through text message, or otherwise with those women to whom you are not married? Gouge it out and throw it away. What does the spiritual discipline of obedience allow the Holy Spirit to produce in you, gentlemen? Well, if you're obedient to a text like this, I believe the Holy Spirit will produce an even greater love for you, or in you, for the wife that you have. For those who are married and unmarried, it would create a greater appreciation for the opposite gender. For those unmarried and married, it would create a greater self-control in us against the temptations that the enemy brings to every man. Gouge it out and throw it away. And the final discipline I want to bring before us today is the discipline of generosity. Jesus was nothing if not generous. Maybe you've heard the story of the rich young ruler who asked Jesus the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responded with the commandments that we know. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, that man declared, I have kept all of these since I was a boy. And Jesus looked at him and loved him, meaning he had compassion on him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor, 
and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell, and he went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. It was Jesus himself who found himself in a very similar situation as the rich young ruler. He had it all. The heavens and the earth were under his feet. And yet Paul tells us that he took a very different approach to the way in which he lived his life compared to the rich young ruler. Philippians 2, Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. He was nothing if not generous to leave his throne in heaven to occupy a tomb on earth that we poor sinners might inherit the kingdom of God. And the audacity that we have to celebrate his generous act and be so greedy ourselves. Now, I'm not suggesting that he has called you to sell everything you have. But this was a specific command to a specific person. But I know that he has commanded us all to be generous and willing to share, especially with those in need. Paul wrote these instructions to that same young church leader named Timothy. He said, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. And in this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Can I act on the instructions that Paul gave to Timothy for this church? I don't know the tendencies of everyone in this room, but maybe some of you, like me, struggle with materialism. Gathering stuff for ourselves, for our own possession, our own comfort, our own enjoyment, and ignoring the needs of others while we already have so much. This is also called greed. What's the antidote? Generosity must resist greed. And like Paul said, when we reject greed and give generously, we begin to take hold of the life that is truly life. For we know that any and all possessions that we possess here pale in comparison to what God has waiting for us in eternity. And so what we do now is we give generously to express the gratitude that we have to him who has given oh so much to us. I officially started my new job. You heard Mark talking about it on screen before the sermon. As a missional impact minister, one of my responsibilities is to engage with our uh, partners who are around the world in the work that they are doing to encourage and to pray for them and to ask how we as a church here at Christ Church can support them. As you know, during this month of May, we have been raising funds for Central India Christian Mission and the work that they are doing against the COVID outbreak in India that is absolutely ravaging the country. Some 400,000 plus people every day contracting the virus, some 25,000 plus every day dying from the virus. It is bad in India. 
And this church has taken it upon ourselves to give generously to Central India Christian Mission and the fight that they are undergoing right now. I got the privilege, it was a great first day on the job, to speak to one of the directors of Central India Christian Mission and let them know that this church has raised over $50,000 for the fight against COVID in India. That same director told me that it's getting worse and that they are, they're actually $17,000 short of their goal right now for what they think they will need to fight the outbreak at the hospital they have and at their church plants that are scattered around India. As he was telling me that, I thought to myself, $17,000 is something that this church could handle in a weekend because we've already done it two weekends in a row. So my ask for those of you who have given is to give again and give generously. To those of you who have been praying about giving and the Holy Spirit has been prompting you to give, be in obedience to the, to the Spirit's leading on your life and give. If you're just now hearing about this, I want you to know what we're giving towards. On the receipt that we will get, it'll be about vaccines and oxygen and medical equipment. For this is needed in the fight against COVID in India for the doctors and physicians and the church planners who are helping to try and heal the body. But what's really happening is that in one of the most unreached countries in the world for the gospel, people are flocking to little cities on a hill, a hospital and small church plants all throughout India to have their body healed. And when they're having their body healed, their soul will be preached to, that there is a greater physician who can heal their life and offer them hope. That's what our money is going to, to help people be healed and help people know Jesus. So back to the topic of the morning. What does the spiritual discipline of generosity allow the Holy Spirit to produce in our life? It allows the Holy Spirit to produce a self-control in us that rejects greed. Let me ask the question. Why would you commit to spiritual practices such as these and many more that we didn't have time to cover? I want to give you three reasons I think it's worthy of your time to practice these spiritual disciplines. Number one, it's an act of worship to God. Paul writes this when addressing the church in Rome. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. The world we live in is conforming to the chaos that the enemy brings, but not so with us. In an act of worship, we commit ourselves to the transformation and to the likeness of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we do so by allowing the Holy Spirit to work in our lives through the disciplines of our faith. It is an act of worship. Number two, it leads to a more fulfilling life. It may seem self-serving, so be it. For it's a less is more situation, really when we remove the chaos from our life to allow space for God to occupy, we take hold of the life that is truly life. And in the midst of this chaos, we can experience what King David wrote about in Psalm 23, quiet waters and green pastures, peace in the midst of chaos. This would be our life. 
And number three, we are less swayed by sin and more consumed by Christ. This is going back to 1 Corinthians, where we beat our flesh, we strike a blow to our body. We are not shadow boxing, we are not running aimlessly, for we are in a war. And these spiritual disciplines give us self-control to be less swayed by the attacks of the enemy. And oh, the greater reward is that we will be even more consumed by Christ. I want to encourage you to practice these spiritual disciplines. That the Holy Spirit might not only produce self-control in you, but also all the fruit that he brings to our lives. We only had time to cover just a few. And so I want to give you a couple of resources that would be good for you in your study and your implementation of the spiritual disciplines into your life. The first resource I would like to recommend is a book called Beautiful Resistance. It's by a man named John Tyson. This would be a great resource for those of you who have never practiced the spiritual disciplines before, who are pretty new Christians. That's the book I would recommend for you. If you've been a Christian for a while and have been practicing the spiritual disciplines and would like to grow in your understanding and your implementation of them, I would recommend The Spirit of the Disciplines by a man named Dallas Willard. You can write those down or take a picture of the screen. But if you do so, here's my ask. Read them and put them into practice. Don't run aimlessly. Don't shadow box. Allow the Holy Spirit to work in your life that he might produce even more self-control in you. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.